Hi, once again, welcome to the Behind the Shot podcast. I'm your host, Steve Brazel. This is the podcast where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. And I've actually been doing this podcast for a year now. I started this in December of 2016. And over the last year, I've had some phenomenal guests, some great conversations. And you know what? some great support from you as well. Your reviews on iTunes, your uh, reaching out on social media and making suggestions and comments and all the support that you give, your suggestions even for guests that I might have through the contact form at thisweekinphoto.com. This is gonna be the last episode of 2017, but I've got some great episodes lined up for 2018. Being as how this is the last one of this year, I thought it was a good time to do a little flashback, a retrospective, a highlight reel of all the episodes that I've done in the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. So this will give you an opportunity to see some small snippets of ones that you might have missed that you might want to go catch up on. This is the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the retrospective of the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. I started this podcast in December of 2016 by releasing five episodes. Now, those five episodes had been actually recorded in the summer of 2015, and then I sat on them for a while as I was kind of getting everything going to, to release the podcast. The first episode I ever did was with my buddy Frederick Van Johnson. He was into something at the time that I had never heard of, so he took a few minutes and explained to me what a cinemagraph was. This was shot on 4K. So with a Panasonic GH4, it was shot on 4K. And this is just a so clip. This is, just, this is literally a video shot. Correct. This is a frame grab from video that I brought into Cinemagraph Pro. And then with the mouse, painted over the area that I wanted to have in motion. We can get into more of the, the, the actual on the set, how the shot was accomplished. But, you know, in post-production, essentially that was it. You know, was to take the video clip in there and paint over where you want the motion to keep to occur and loop do some other things and boom you're done it's fascinating to me because as i'm watching again the longer you watch this thing and and i'm trying to watch your face as you're talking but i'm stuck watching that rocking chair because it's and defying the laws of nature right at, at some is. point gravity should take over and stop the horse right but it doesn't think. but what i love is the shadows are moving too and and not only that but i love well okay First of all, did you take stills while you were there too? Because if you stop the loop on this, it's an amazing still photograph without the movement. I want to clearly state that does not have to be moving for this to be amazing. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, for this particular shot, I did not take any still photographs. For episode number two of the Behind the Shot podcast, I went a completely different direction than the cinemagraphs that I was talking about with Frederick Van Johnson. I called up my friend Christy Goodwin. She's the house photographer at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Yes, that Royal Albert Hall. Widely considered to be one of the greatest live music and tour photographers on the planet, Christy explained to me a shot she took of Katy Perry that she calls a miracle. And so in the rehearsal, she's doing that move with the mic up her head to the side and her arm out. No, she was standing straight front. That's the whole, that's how this shot is like a miracle. I call it my miracle work. So she, she, she's on stage. She walks to the B stage, does her song there. And then on the B stage, she starts her last song. 
comes back to the front, takes her position there, and I'm singing out loud with her, with her the whole song, which is embarrassing, I know, but I did, because I didn't want to miss that fire thing. And so it goes fire, it works, and so I start snapping. I have three frames, I, I swear to God, three frames. And then she turns her head around. Why? Because she hadn't seen it yet. She wanted to see what it looked like. It was <laughs> the very first time. So then it was only the back of her head, and she kept singing. She turns around, she looks at everything like that, and then the contraption she had to go in closes, and she goes down. So I had three frames. I remember that walk from the pit to backstage. That was the longest walk I ever made because I didn't know. For episode number three, I sat down with a Canon Explorer of Light, Ken Sklute, and he explained to me what it's like to photograph something that you can't see with the naked eye. It's the Aurora Borealis. I mean, is this a lot of Lightroom or Photoshop as well, or was this pretty much how it looked? You don't even know it yet, but you're asking two questions there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna help help you with that. Uh, this is this is exactly what I saw in the back of my camera. I've I've done nothing in in processing to aid this. There's no saturation help. It's a little bit of contrast help, a tiny little bit of noise reduction. But other than that, there's absolutely nothing done to this image. This is virtually straight out of the camera. The the, the dichotomy here is. It's exactly what it looked like on the back of the camera, but visually, sitting there in my chair, I have a chair right behind my tripod here. The truth be told here, I couldn't see these colors. This at all? At all. There was nothing visible about this. Okay, so we have the Canon Explorer of Light, Ken Sklute, photographing something he can't even see with the naked eye. Let's move to Martin Bailey. Martin also talks about something that he can't see, but specifically what he says is, don't trust air that you can't see. But the most important tip we get from Martin is, even if you've been to a location to photograph it, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go back. But the, the thing with this one is that for the first two days of my tour that we were in Hokkaido photographing the cranes, there'd been no falling snow. And so what that means is, is that the, the snow that, that's on the ground, it gets trampled, gets a little bit dirty, but there's also nothing in the air. And um, the, Jay Maisel, and I know that it comes in a different, a different um, situation for him. He's, t he's talking about something different, but he actually said, uh, never trust air that you can't see. Um, and being a native New Yorker, I understand that that's different for him. But I love to have some sort of precipitation or something in the air that gives us atmosphere. And so we actually, we, we woke up on the, the third morning. And as we left the hotel, it, it was snowing. And I thought, okay, so if it's snowing, we're not going to, we were planning to go two hours north. We actually drove an hour back south to, to the cranes and we spent, so Just you, you had already there. had the tour at this location before. Yeah, we, do, the, we were supposed to be going somewhere else on this day, but I'm the tour leader. I can do what I want. So, you know, at least within reason. So for episode number five, there's a lot of things that I could say. It was a special one to me. It was the final one of those five episodes I had recorded a year and a half before I launched. And it was also with a good friend of mine, Troy Miller. He's a Southern California-based wedding photographer. I think 
probably one of the best wedding photographers and, and underrated wedding photographers out there. Well, Troy sat down to talk with me about a wedding photo we took on a rainy Southern California day with beautiful lighting in it. But he also shared with us how he composes images in his mind. In what you do for a living capturing shots like this, when you walk up to a scene and haven't seen this scene before, how do you assemble this shot in your head? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a challenging question. Um, oftentimes, I, I already see the image in my head and I'm very reactive to my environment. It's not like I have this pose in my mind that I'm looking for a place for. I oftentimes will look at a scene and it just, almost speaks to me i i the, the way that the scene is laid out the leading lines of the of the fence um and i look at it and go man it would be so cool if there was a person right there and that's that's where i put them so there's no real system it's just visually i see it that way so in this instance or anytime that i see a fence line like that i'm, I'm photographing people i want my couple close to me I want to show them off. I like the skyline. I'm looking for lines, leading lines. And a lot of that just comes from, I think, uh, muscle memory. You know, you've done it for so long. You look at a scene and you're like, oh, this is going to work. I need the 24 or I need the, the fisheye or whatever. Up next, we're going to head down to San Diego, California, and talk to my friend Adam L. Micaias. Adam is a fantastic live music and tour photographer, and he took what I consider to be one of the most iconic drummer images ever. It's of Blink-182's Travis Barker, and what was really neat about sitting down with somebody like Adam is, he's not afraid to talk about the fact that not all images are winners. Sometimes you have to take a lot of shots to get that one fantastic one. I wanted it 1.8 or 1.4 or whatever because it's a, it's a 20 millimeter fixed lens from Sigma and it's really hard to shoot in backlit situations, which is what this was. So what's really saved me is, I don't know where I focused on this image. I don't know if I can look that up, but I'm going to guess it was like his neck or his torso where that highlight line is. So I'm where guessing, the contrast line is. Yeah, I'm guessing I grabbed focus there or did it manually. I don't remember what I shot, but usually I'll, I'll even do live view zoom in and grab it. So usually I'll grab focus and then just shoot the same shot over and over. And I think I shot this freehand, but it might be on a stick. I was shooting with everything back there. So I'm not, I don't, I wish I could remember everything, but basically it was grabbing focus, then staying in the same spot, then shooting the same shot over and over until I got it. And I missed it a lot too. Um, so, you know, I grab it, grab the focus and then shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. And then the lighting, that lighting was really fast. I think I gave you the continuum of images. So you can kind of see how it goes from like, not so great, not so great, not so great. All right, cell phones or lighters are there. All right, then you get that nice spotlight on Travis. So sometimes it takes a little bit of patience and shooting enough shots to get that winner. Other times, it takes a little bit of luck. Let's talk to Dana McMullen. He went down to Joshua Tree to try and shoot the nighttime sky, but he ended up with a little bit of fill light he hadn't planned on. Um, this was a fluke. I ended up getting out there. My wife and I packed up, you know, the FJ and headed out there. Um, the sun went down and there was a crescent moon hanging over the horizon. And it almost looked like, like with visually to your eyes, it almost looked like the sun was still kind of setting the way it was casting light and shadows on the rock. 
And I, I thought, you know what? I thought the image was ruined. Because if I do want a light rock like this and get some um, rock in the foreground or a cactus or a tree, I'll always, you know, add a little bit of artificial light and light paint it. I've done everything from taking my remote flash and my wife will actually trigger it from 50 feet to my right or to my left to get something to light up. Uh, I've used the headlights of my truck. I've used flashlights. I've, you know, I've used all kinds of different light sources, but this was all coming from the moon. Those types of shots are so amazing to me. At some point, I really need to try and photograph the nighttime sky. The problem is, I know I will probably never be as good as Dana McMullen. So let's move to the second Canon Explorer of Light that I've had on my show and somebody I now consider a friend, Rick Salmon. Rick sat down to talk about one of his travel photos and shared some of his Salmonisms with us. But the other thing I really enjoyed about Rick's episode is he started to really introduce a topic that you will see over and over in all the episodes of Behind the Shot. And that is you don't take a photograph, you make a photograph. But, you know, you've heard me say this, another one of my salmonisms. It's not, again, not an original saying, but I use it all the time. Light illuminates, shadows define. So we have these defining shadows. But getting back to your friendliest comment, I'll vouch for this because that car, you know, look look where the placement of the car is, right? Well, right. when I got there, this is parked behind, actually to the side. If you push the car back and moved it to the left, picture-wise. That answers my question. So, so I asked the, the owner, I said, oh, man, I'm here. I would love to get a shot. Ah, I'll help you. So <laughs> he's sitting in, and my wife and I are like, I'm doing most of the pushing. But you know, Susan, she was helping a little. We pushed the car into exact position. And, you know, this guy's just helping me out. So the next time you go out to do some photography, don't just take a photograph, make a photograph. Sometimes it's all about technique. In the next episode, I sit down with my friend Dustin Jack to talk about one of his celebrity portraits. It's of Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee. It's not a live music shot. It's an actual portrait, but it's one of the most amazing things. And he gives us a little insight into the detail he puts into his shots. What is your secret for getting this kind of uh, textury, realistic 3D look? Uh, I mean, I'm primarily a Lightroom and Photoshop guy, but I am uh, a huge fan of masking. And there's probably 10 or 12 layers just on this image alone. Um, he is completely masked out of every one of the three shots and the background I brought back in. So, oh, because the background wasn't white. No. It was gray. It was a medium gray. So, I mean, you know, I dig around and I'm, you know, I'm not everybody's flavor. I, I tend to process pretty heavily, which, you know, I understand that it's not everybody's favorite thing. But for me, you know, all those years in Butterfields and being, you know, spending 2000 hours in a dark room, I feel like Photoshop is my dark room. And, you know, I have to, I craft a piece, you know, every, every one piece that you see, you don't see you know, 500 other ones because it, you know, it takes a long time to actually put them together and, you know, make it, I try to make each piece a piece of art that'll stand on its own versus spitting out, you know, 15 shots. 
That really is such an important concept. Don't go out and spray and pray. Take your time and make each shot count and then work on that shot until it's the piece of art that you see in your mind. Next up, we're going to talk about a type of photography that I don't do and probably never will do, but I know somebody who does, and Craig Colvin does it better than most people. Craig Colvin sat down with me to talk about his shot Rainbow Hills and how sometimes you push your gear to the limit. So here's something at F14 at 45 millimeters, I wouldn't think that you would get sharp nose to tail for this. Probably not, <laughs> probably not the best words to use on this shot. Right. <laughs> for, uh, front to back uh, over an eight foot span, but you appear to have kept your depth of field for all eight feet. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yep. Uh, did, and it, did you know that that would work? Uh, um. I I knew it was kind of borderline. Uh, I I really wanted to shoot this at f eighteen, uh, but my my lights were maxed out, and so that's uh, you know I, I ended up with f fourteen and uh, hoped it worked. I mentioned earlier that there will be a recurring theme as you look back at a year of the Behind the Shot podcast, and that is that you don't just take a photograph. You make a photograph, and that's what happened to Peter Levshin, but it wasn't necessarily his choice. He ended up in a space where there just wasn't enough light, and he had to get creative. And I looked over in the corner, and there's this young monk sitting in the corner with three candles, and he's just looking at us. And we walked in, and we started talking to him through our interpreter, and we were very polite, very respectful. And these are. Uh, relics of the dead, and they put him as a uh, p place where they can come back and worship, whatever. He had three candles, obviously not enough for any kind of lighting. So what we did is we scrounged up maybe a dozen or two dozen candles, and we asked him very politely if it was okay to take some pictures. I got four, maybe five shots on a tripod, extremely low light conditions. His face, he's extremely nervous. He's never done this before. And afterwards, we gave him a small donation, and he was just flabbergasted. He was the nicest young man. He's probably about 12 years old. Nothing like this has ever happened to him before, and um, we basically left. Next up was a photographer I was not aware of. Earlier in 2017 at WPPI, my friend Renee Robin introduced me to a digital artist by the name of Anya Auntie. Now, if you don't know Anya's work, you need to look at the blog post for this episode and look her up. She has a mind that works so different than mine. She literally creates worlds in her mind and turns them into photographic art. Then I thought that why is it there? Why is it lying on the ground? Why is she holding it? And then I had this idea of uh, this girl actually stealing the moon from the sky. <laughs> and I thought, like, the moon must be heavy, I think. So she needs, like, rope or chains to carry or to, to drag it on the ground. And I developed all this idea. Okay, so up next, we're going to head to Burning Man. Now, I've never been to Burning Man myself. Hopefully, someday I will be able to. But I was able to sit down with photographer Christopher Berry and talk to him about one of his photos that I call Burning Man Taxi. One of the things I really liked about this conversation was Christopher's approach to photography. Photograph what's pleasing to you. You know, I at, at this point, I just was doing what was pleasing to me, and I just wanted to make sure I got different types of activities 
in this moment, you know, and, you know, I was tired, you know, I would, I would ride and ride and ride. And then I would just stop whenever I had a clear moment and the dust would break. And, um, you know, what, what caught me about this particular moment was the, really the heart, you know, the heart to me was the point of this image because that particular heart was iron and metal and, and tough and huge. And you can't see from the picture, but it was a huge dust storm. The dust storm had passed and people were going inside of the heart to talk and to get out of the, the, you know, to get out of the dust storm, you know, and be in a place where they felt protected. And, um, you know, and people were in transition. And when I was riding, I was like, man, the shadow looks really cool. So I could probably put the bike here. And I was like, oh, that heart, I got to get that heart, you know? And so when I saw people going away, I was like, and people had kept going, and so I just kind of waited, you know, and so I snapped the picture and that's that's what came out. One of the things that strikes me about all the episodes that I've recorded of Behind the Shot so far is where photographers get their inspiration. For this next guest that I had on, he found his inspiration in a song. It's Paul Ernst and visual storytelling. First of all, let, let's start at the beginning. The image has a name. What, what did you call this image? Onto Your Shore is the name of the image. Onto Your Shore. And you told me it was inspired by a song. It was. Uh, it was a song by the, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Garrison Keillor, uh, one of the most famous modern day uh, oral storytellers uh, around. And uh, he had an, uh, a group uh, by the name of the Wayland Jennies uh, on his show. And uh, I, I just fell in love with their music. And they have a song. Uh, that that line is in the song, uh, and when I when I listen to the song, my my brain works a lot like a a slideshow, and when I see my images, I see them very very complete, and I see them very uh, distinct. Uh, and um, I saw the image that you see on screen in my head when I heard that song. One of the things I love about doing the Behind the Shot podcast is that now I see great photography everywhere I look. One day I was browsing 500px and I ran across a photographer named Cole Thompson. I loved his work, so I reached out to him and asked him to be on the show, and luckily he agreed. And we settled on his image, The Angel Gabriel. And what was special about this image is it was a turning point for Cole. It helped him to decide he wanted to start making images, not just taking images. And on this image, he not only got creative, but he also was a nice guy. So we took a couple of images, and he wanted to hold his Bible in this one image, and that's the one that I used. And it's a long exposure so that all of those crowds of people disappear, except for those couple of ghosts in the background who lingered just long enough to, to record themselves. So after the photo was taken, I took Gabriel to have lunch at one of these four-star restaurants that line the beginning of the pier. And he was dirty, he was homeless, he was uh, barefoot, and the people gave me the eye, why are you bringing him in here? But we sat and I said, Gabriel, order anything that you like. And he said, well, I'd love to have a steak with mushrooms and onions. I haven't had one for years. And when the waitress brought it, he picked it up and ate it with his hands. Uh, he was a delightful fellow. He was clearly impaired from years of drug use, but he was there. And we talked about Romania. And I told him that I was half Romanian. So we talked about the old country. 
and uh, about his father who lived nearby and just had a nice time. So one of the biggest challenges that I've had in hosting the Behind the Shot podcast and in booking guests is keeping a variety of the content. There's a photographer in San Diego, Alan Hess. He's the house photographer at a large venue down there, and he literally wrote the book on live music photography. He's also a Kelby One or Photoshop World instructor. But I knew I wanted to have him on, but I already had had a number of music photographers on. But again, house photographer, large venue. He shoots hockey, Cirque du Soleil, and pro bull riding. When I saw this shot, I knew we had to dissect it. And it was a great conversation where he shared his experiences with pushing new gear to the limits to find out how far it will go while staying calm and still thinking about composition. Once I started getting, like figuring out that I could get a, a better angle as they came right out the chute, then it became a matter of uh, timing. Now, um, I mentioned this to you right before we started and I'm gonna go in right here. This was taken with a, with a Nikon D750 DSLR. Not, not a um, surprise there. I mean, it's, a, it's a, one of their cameras. But this was actually the very first time I'd ever used the camera. Uh, it had arrived a couple of days before. I'd run it through some tests. Um, I really uh, thought it was doing a, an amazing job um, capturing stuff. And I just kept pushing it further and further and further uh, to Didn't see what it could do. Didn't you go into this, though? With a camera you've never used, thinking this is a paid job, what if this doesn't work? Well, I had my other, I had my D4 with me. Um, okay. All so right. I was, I was shooting, you know, switching between the two. Uh, the thing that I found fascinating was that um, I needed to really go a little higher on the ISO and shutter speeds than I would shoot a concert at. So, so what go, was this at? Do you know? Yeah. Well, this is ISO uh, 6400. Um, wow. aperture is two eight. And then it was a one, one thousandth of a second, um, exposure to get everything frozen in place. I started Hold on out a second here. Hold on. I got to interrupt you. Yeah. And, and by the way, what lens is this? Uh, I'm going to guess it was a 70 to 200, probably somewhere in the 180, 160 millimeter range. Okay. So um, here's what shocks me about this. You, you, you said 6,400 ISO one, one thousandth of a second. Yeah, which makes sense to freeze this that you would need that, and so obviously you did sixty four hundred just because you needed the one thousandth. Right. That but was you the... shot this at two point eight with a moving bull. Yeah, that part wasn't the hard part. The hard part was trusting the camera to not have um, you know horrible artifacts at sixty four hundred ISO. I really enjoyed that episode with Alan Hess. It was great to sit down and talk to him. He's an amazingly nice guy and a fantastic author and photographer. So next up is Photo Joseph. If you are into photography at all, you probably know who Photo Joseph is. He's a great photographer, podcaster, blogger, educator. He does a little bit of everything. But even he will travel the world to get better. So how did you end up in Tbilisi, Georgia? Okay. So I was there for a workshop with John Stanmeyer. I was there as a student, not instructing. So many people are familiar with John Stanmeyer. He's just got an incredible, incredible history of photography. If you go to stanmeyerworkshops.com, please do go check out what he does. His workshops are phenomenal. And his the idea behind his workshop is not a traditional kind of, you know, come here and learn how to push the button, take a picture, set the camera. His workshops are storytelling workshops. Every student there had a different story to tell. Every student there had to come in with their idea pretty well baked. And, and of course, those ideas evolved as we were on the ground. 
But we were there as if we were on assignment for National Geographic or something. That was the idea. Treat this like a Nat Geo assignment. You are digging in and telling the story. Every single a photographer. A photojournalism exercise. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Every every photographer had a fixer, a local you know, local fixer who could translate, show us around, get us into places, open doors for us. And they were, that whole experience was about telling the story of whatever it is your, your chosen story is. And then you'd work with John every day. Uh, sit down with him, go through your photos, talk about what you're doing, how you're succeeding, where your failures are. He'd look at your pictures and go, you're on the right track or this sucks, go somewhere else. You're not you're not, you know, doing what you can and so on. And it was an incredible, incredible experience. I went because I love the idea of doing this. I love the idea of learning from someone like John, who's just a phenomenally accomplished photographer and to get this different perspective on what you try to do every day. But, you know, you can you never stop learning. You can always, always get better. After 17 episodes of talking to great photographers about their work, I decided with episode 18 it was time for a change. My inspiration for this was that I had two images stolen by a music magazine in Spain and I needed to talk to a lawyer. I ended up talking to the copyright zone guys, Ed Greenberg and Jack Resnicki. And while talking to, to Ed on the phone one day, I said to him, you know, I really would like to get you guys on the podcast. Now, when they agreed to come on... I was really nervous because I know what lawyers like Ed charge, but they were very, very kind with their time. And it was an hour and 20 minutes of in-depth conversation on copyright. And this snippet you're about to see really describes why you should register your images. When we go do our lectures, one of the first questions we ask people is, how many people here have camera insurance? And you know, 99% of the hands go up. Everybody has camera insurance to protect their cameras. Then we say, how many people here have image insurance? And we say, image insurance is registration. That's really what it is. It's insurance to protect your images. If you insure your camera and the camera is worth $1,000, whatever your, forget about whatever your deductible is, uh, the most amount of money you're going to get from your insurance company is $1,000. When you register your work, then you are potentially uh, in a situation where you can recover statutory damages and attorney's fees for infringements. So you may have had your work infringed for something that you would have granted a license for for $5,000 or not at all but be able to go to court and collect $150,000 or $170,000. No insurance company is going to give you more than your loss. Of all the episodes of the Behind the Shot podcast that I've recorded, if there was one episode that I was going to say every photographer should see, that's the one. Episode number 18 with Ed Greenberg and Jack Resnicki, the Copyright Zone guys, on copyright for photographers. Up next, we go to Vienna, Austria, and my friend Matthias Hombauer. Matthias is a great live music photographer, and he was hired to shoot on stage at the largest outdoor festival ever in Austria. The problem was he had a little bit of trouble getting in. And then when he got there, he decided to shoot with a manual focus lens. Uh, as I said, it was one of the biggest uh, event, open air events uh, in Austria. So 120,000 people, I didn't have any ticket. So I was going there with my car and then I figured out that I cannot even get to the, uh, to the festival area or to the parking lot because you can only go there when you have a ticket. So what the Vintage Trouble Manager said, I will have a backstage ticket on the ticket counter. 
But to get there, I had to drive with my car to a to a neighbor town, a small town, parked my car at the McDonald's, and then uh, took a taxi to the to the venue there. Uh, once I arrived at the ticket counter, they had the tickets for me, but they were uh, normal normal concert tickets, like audience tickets. So I couldn't get backstage with it. So I thought, okay, I will just uh, call the tour manager because I had the, the cell phone number. The problem was everyone was uh, using their cell phones there and the signal totally broke down. 120,000 so people using the cell phones. Right, right. So there was no, no signal, no internet. I couldn't, couldn't reach them. And so I just uh, went to the, to the security guys and said, hey guys, I know it sounds crazy, but I have to, to go backstage because I will meet the guys from Vintage Trouble. And sure, they were not instructed and they, they had no idea. So discussing with them for five minutes, uh, finally, they got me into the backstage area and then um, I found Vintage Trouble and everything was set up. But, but this was kind of a, yeah, it was a challenge to, to go there. And uh, the lens was a Samyang 14 millimeter lens. Uh, it's a manual focus lens. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I'm using this is uh, simply because it's cheap. You know, if you get a, a Canon or Nikon 14 millimeter uh, fixed lens, it's about, I don't know, $2,000. And I think there is a new Sigma out. It's, it's also that expensive. And the Samyang costs you about $300. And, yeah, uh, but dude, you're you you are you're on stage with a critical shot. The band needs the shot. You cannot miss this shot. <laughs> and you chose a manual focus lens. I'm right, sorry, but if I was in that scenario, especially with my eyes, uh, I uh, there's no question I would have gone. I need autofocus. I need autofocus. Yeah, but but the thing is that what I learned um, in the last eight or nine years being a, a photographer is that I really can. Uh, make the best out of the shots if I limit myself or I push myself. After recording episode number 18 with Ed Greenberg and Jack Resnicki on copyright for photographers, I knew I had to get Jack back on an episode by himself. You see, Jack Resnicki is one of the original Canon Explorers of Light, and he's an amazing photographer. So he sat down to talk about one of his travel photos with me and something he calls gesture. The, the young boy that's that's laughing and looking a different direction than the other three. Right. You know, is, is you've seen this in portraits, you know, for years and years and years. That adds contrast in and of itself. You have three band members looking forward, but the lead singer is blurry and looking a different way. You know, whatever. Yeah, that's, um, that's what that we call gesture. Adds, say again? That's what we call gesture in a photograph. And, and that's a term that I stole from my friend Jay Maisel, who, uh, who coined it. And um, uh, it really explains it's that little something, that little humanism, that little uh, spark in a picture that, that gives it some soul. And it's just a gesture. And a gesture could be uh, somebody doing something. A gesture could be an inanimate object, too. And now we go from one Canon Explorer of Light to another. We're back with Rick Salmon. Now, on episode number eight, he stopped by to dissect one of his images, like we usually do on the show, but that's not why he was here for this episode. He had written a blog post that I saw on good versus bad workshop behavior because he does a lot of workshops all around the world. And it got me thinking, how can photographers that pay for a workshop get the most out of it? So Rick sat down to talk about it and had some great ideas. There's really only one spot 
I feel, for the best picture. You know, Ansel Adams said, <laughs> you want a good picture, knowing a, uh, a good picture really depends, something like it depends on where you're standing. So if someone's taking, you know, 57 pictures of this, you know, that's bad workshop behavior. I say, you have to really envision the end result, get in there and shoot and scoot and let someone else, uh, let someone else uh, get in there. Okay, so this next episode is a little bit different. This is one of the strangest stories I think I've ever heard. A selfie of a photographer that goes viral worldwide representing anger and protest. And you will not believe the way that he found out his image was being used around the world. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about the story a little bit here. Tell me about how you found out that it was a story. So it started when one of my coworkers, uh, when I worked at AOL, uh, she knows my work and she knows my photos and especially this photo. And she came one day to the office and she was kind of mad that I never told her that I'm selling t-shirts with that photo on it. And she, I said, I, I don't have any t-shirts. I don't have any products. Trust me. I would know. <laughs> and she's like, no, I, I took the subway to get to the office and someone was wearing your face on it. And this is in New York. She's walking the streets and taking the subways in New York where you live. And your face, not just your image, your face is on a T-shirt. Yes, it's my photo and it's a photo of myself. So it's double, uh, double me, I guess. And yeah, so she, she really believe that it's me and i told her it's a mistake it's probably like a different screen photo and it's just you and that's it and i didn't look at it like didn't think about it too much later uh, and then a few months later i had a friend coming to visit me and he wanted to go shopping in soho and look for shirts to buy you know whatever tourist one souvenirs buy. new york souvenirs uh, more than that, like fashion, yeah. Okay. So I, I told him about two or three stores that could be cool to look for stuff. And I went with them. And second or third store, we go in, and he goes and looks for whatever he looks for, and I'm just waiting and looking at stuff. And as I'm looking, I see the shirt of me, of my face, that my friend was talking about. So I knew she wasn't imagined. Up next, one of my favorite photographers, Anthony Dangio. Now, Anthony in recent years has started doing mountain climbing and decided he was going to do the Everest Base Camp hike. Well, on that trip, while he was at a monastery in the Himalayas, he decided to go for a little hike of his own and took this breathtaking landscape photo. Now, I will add, this is not the type of photography he's well known for. He's a live music photographer that's well known for shooting album covers and concerts for some of the top country artists today. But during this episode, he made some great points on lens selection. This was F11, um, three minutes at 400 ISO. Interesting. What, what, what body and, and lens? That was, um, this was the 5D SR um, with a 16 to 35 millimeter Mark III, the new one that came out. And the reason for that uh, was 
two weeks early, I smashed my 11 to 24 in, in Snowden um, by dropping it on a rock and I didn't have the, my wide angle lens. So I had to hire, I wanted to hire an 11 to 24, but they didn't have any in stock and they gave me the 16 to 35 um, Mark III. And it is a stellar lens. And when you add that to a 50 megapixel body, like the 5DSR, um, you are going to get a shot like this. <laughs> you know, I mean, do you do you wish that you had had the eleven? I mean, th no. was this at sixteen? No. Uh, good question. I can tell you. I've got the EXIF there. Um, yes, it was exactly sixteen millimeter. So, do you wish? I mean, that you had more width with the eleven? No, because that's one thing I love the eleven to twenty-four millimeter lens. Um, I use it as much as I can, but it is a very heavy though, lens. really heavy. It's very heavy, um, but it's a very difficult lens to shoot with because you need a sense of perspective. Because if I shot this at 11 millimeters, those mountains would not look as majestic. They would fade into the distance. So it's one of these lenses where you have to have something in the foreground to create a, um, a sense of perspective or, or something because it's, it's, it's a tough lens to shoot at. Um, you, you need huge mountains to, to have it look like there's something significant in the, in the background. Um, it's more of a foreground lens, really. I love that type of photography, and Anthony is such a great photographer. But I have to say, I don't think I'm going to be hiking the Himalayas anytime soon. So for this next episode, let me explain. I've been in radio for almost 40 years, or just over 40 years. I've interviewed a lot of people, and I just don't get nervous with it anymore. But then I booked Trey Ratcliffe for the show. And when we started recording, I could tell. I actually do get nervous. Luckily, he is one of the nicest guys, was generous with his time, and this guy has more knowledge than I think I will ever have. And at one point during the conversation, we started talking about HDR and color theory. Listen to this. I guess I can say two things. One, the more HDR you do, um, the more sensitive you become to light and saturation. And then you also become, and I learned this from, from painting, I don't paint much, but I learned this from studying painting and impressionist, is that, you know, if you have, like, let's say you have a green and it's close to a, a red or something. I mean, that's a good, bad example, a, a green color that's not oversaturated at all, just like a normal green, and you have it beside a blue, okay? Well, so... You know, your pupil just looks at the green okay, right away. So you're like, okay, I see the green. And then your pupil might jump over to the blue, right? You actually don't even have, when you look at a photo, you don't really have control over where your eyes go. Your brain takes over and your eye will move around. You can't see like later after you look at the photo for a while, then you can start to direct where your eye goes. But the first time you look at a scene or anything, you have no control. Your eye just goes crazy. It spazzes out. But what happens is after you go from the green to the blue is... Even before you go to the blue, you have the after image of the green inverted on your retina. You know, you know this if you look at a bright color and you look at a white wall, you kind of see the opposite of that color, right? But what happens, of course, now you have the inverse of the green and now you're looking at the blue through this filter, right? You actually have this weird filter. It's not like, it's not like you have a, a palette cleanser between all your colors. And so you're always having these filters as you move around. So I become very sensitive to what colors go beside each other and what inverse colors mix well together. Um, so this, this, is, this is an aspect that I've become very sensitive to. 
The other one is that um, you don't want to oversaturate too many different colors on a photo. They did this one interesting study on uh, eye analysis, on pupil analysis, where pupils look at on photos or at anything. And immediately, the eye jumps to the most saturated thing on the photo. Not a surprise. If there's a red yeah. apple, it'll go right at the red apple. And then it will look at that, but your cones can only take that much heat for like a, a second, right? Like something like 900 milliseconds. And then your, your cone actually gets burnt out. And it, 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 this is the involuntary part of the eye movement. It will move off the red and it will seek something that is less saturated, like a gray or a black or a subtle, very subtle saturation. So you have to have a place for the pupil to go to easily. So it just moves easily off of the red spot. And then it will recharge in like half a second, 500 milliseconds, and then it will jump to another saturated spot. So this is a mistake I see with a lot of maybe new HDR photographers or people that use too much color, is that if there's nowhere for the eye to take a break, it will drift off the photo entirely and you've lost them. So you've got to have places for the eye to recharge in the photo. Once again, thank you to Trey Ratcliffe for being on Behind the Shot. I enjoyed it immensely. There is some great information in that entire episode. So if you haven't seen it, make sure that you check it out. So up next, it's Aerial Photography with Scott Dworkin. Now, I know that you may never get to sit in the cockpit of an F-16 flying next to two other F-16s that are shooting out flares with a camera in hand. But that's okay. Scott's going to do it for us. Now, it doesn't mean this doesn't benefit you, right? One of the wonderful things I love about the Behind the Shot podcast is no matter what type of photography we're talking about on the show, it can still be applied to almost any type of photography that you might do. For example, I have a lot of friends that go and shoot local air shows standing on the tarmac and photographing planes as they fly by. Well, in this episode, Scott discusses how difficult it is to photograph when you're belted into an F-16. So in this shot, though, to answer your question, two things. One, the flares come out much faster than the airplanes are flying. So, you know, these things are rocketing out and they're going to burst into that kind of what you see there and, and then be out of the frame in, in, you know, a couple, a second maybe. So it's almost like a missile. I mean, you have a split second. They kind of fall away. I mean, they, they do. But second thing as to the shutter speed is if you look at the picture, so... I'm going to move here so you can kind of see. But if I'm sitting in the backseat of the nether, well, the nether let, F-16. Let me, let me stop the photo so that people can okay. see you while you do this. Okay. So I'm sitting in the backseat behind the pilot. I We did this a, we did this twice. The first time didn't work. Um, so they had a few more flares to try a second time, which, again, it doesn't always happen. So I'm shooting like this, facing backwards. They're there up in the corner, kind of up where the picture is over there. Um, so what they were doing was falling behind me. So... Again, I'm talking about milliseconds of, you know, a, a second at best of where three, two, one break. They go like this pop flare or he pop flares and then they're rolling behind us or the one's rolling away. The other guy's rolling right behind us. Wouldn't it be awesome to sit in the cockpit of an F-16 with a camera and take pictures? The problem is I get motion sickness sitting in the passenger seat of a car. So we're doing a retrospective of my first year doing the Behind the Shot podcast. And up next is Brett Stanley. Now, Brett is one of the best underwater photographers you will ever find. And in this episode, he gave great tips on how to control the clothing, hair, and accessories that you might use underwater. 
if you visually in your mind for a viewer flip this upside down, that's really what she is, right? She's floating up against the water and her reflection is in the surface of the pool. Exactly. How come her dress is not floating up around her head? How come her hair is not moving? How do you and, and that's in all your photos. There are shots where to me, clearly there's a proper a wardrobe item that should be floating to the surface how do you manage that? Yeah, so that's that's kind of the what I've spent the last sort of three three to five years trying to trying to work out is how to how to work with things underwater. Um, hair is a big one. So in this case, um, Vanessa, the model, her hair is actually tied back. So she didn't really want her hair to flow around too much. So it's actually I think it's tied back in a braid, um, which is why it's not kind of taking off. So she's a client, right? This is not a commercial shoot. She wanted a yeah, underwater right. shot. And she is actually hugely scared of water. Um, and this pool was uh, about 10 feet deep. Wow. So you, you're okay. Her hair's back. You have, if people go to thisweekinphoto.com and look at the blog post for this, some of the images in the gallery on the blog post, you know, show hair that's you know, moving around braids and, and, and stuff like that. But the dress, that dress should be, I, I, I guess what I don't understand is how does everything look so serene when she's holding her breath? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's half of, um, so half of what I, I do in a photo shoot is I, you know, I take photos of people underwater, but the other half is training them and teaching them how to pose underwater without looking like they're about to die. <laughs> We are working our way through the highlights of the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. I'm your host, Steve Brazel, and we're near the end, but not there yet. Up next is my friend Brad Moore, the Nashville, Tennessee-based photographer. Now, many people know Brad as Scott Kelby's assistant, but really, he's an amazing photographer in his own right. And he sat down with me to talk about one of his onstage portraits and the pressure of taking that photograph in front of 5,000 people. <laughs> this was a shot that I wanted and I was able, like, because I knew them well enough, I was able to, to say, guys, I know at the end of the show, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be excited. You're going to be all sorts of emotions. But I think that if you guys were able to go out to the front of the stage, turn around and face me and just let me get a shot of you guys with the entire crowd behind you, that's something that you're going to love to have and be able to remember, you know, later on. So, uh, whenever like I, you know, I'd seen the show a few times on this tour already. And so I knew when they were you know getting ready to be done. And so as they played their last song, as they were finishing it, I basically ran out into the middle of the stage. They knew I was going to do it. So I ran out to the middle of the stage and made sure they didn't forget, <laughs> go out there guys. For the next episode of behind the shot, we went with combat sports. Scott Hirano is a combat sports photographer that was shooting for Showtime for the fight of the century, Mayweather McGregor. He was doing behind the scenes shots. He got some great shots of Conor McGregor before the fight, but it was this one image after the fight in the dressing room with Conor's wife and baby that just struck me. It's an amazing photojournalism shot. And listening to Scott tell the story of what was happening in the room around him while he was trying to take photographs is amazing. Check it out. When you look at this shot, what do you see in his face? I, you know, it's, I, it's funny. I, I guess I never really, uh, there was, there was so much going on that, 
in that moment. And uh, I mean, overall, the tone was um, uh, sort of was was a little he was he was down. Uh, but uh, but I, I think I think my view of this photo is very much informed by what happened around it. So he he was down in the way where where uh he man what if i could have went 12 rounds instead of the 10 what if i just changed up a few things and it it, it was it, it wasn't the same sort of feeling down as happens as maybe as if he were training his whole life to fight a title fight and then lost that so this was definitely not that um he didn't train are, his whole are you life. saying it was more introspective of self self analysis it definitely was a lighter thing Behind me, this are, are uh, uh, his father, the Fertitta brothers, Dana White's just to my left, and uh, and they're the, the Connor's dad is about to pour everybody a drink, and they're about to toast. Can you imagine the pressure of photographing for Showtime at the Mayweather-McGregor fight in Connor's dressing room? After he lost the fight, that's got to be intense. So up next, I have to be honest, it's one of my favorite episodes I have ever recorded of Behind the Shot. Now, I did not know photographer Robbie Klein before we recorded this episode. We had a mutual friend that connected us. I looked through his portfolio. And for the type of photography that I love, I have to say Robbie is one of my favorite photographers out there working today. And he sat down with me to discuss one of his images. It was from a cover shoot for Billboard magazine. And the way this image is assembled is fascinating. But what was really amazing is that Billboard didn't have somebody in the room with him at the time. They were in communication, but the way they communicated, you won't believe it. Are, are the PR people and the management in your ear the whole time or do they stay out of your way or? The, it it kind of just depends, um, shoot to shoot. Um, with this one in particular, uh, Billboard was not on set. Um, they had a producer, a local producer that was on set with us. And so as we are creating each of these sets, we are sending photos uh, to their editors. And so it's kind of a, a cycle where the producer's there. He's taking pictures of all the sets. He's taking pictures of my computer at the photos coming up. We're getting feedback from them and we're kind of changing it as they, um, you know, as they have their preferences. Using uh, a cell phone and texting people photos? Oh, yeah. We have billboards, um, photo editor on the phone because um, they couldn't make it in for this one. And, uh, and yeah, we were, we were. You have a guy who's not on set looking at cell phone texts going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you change this? Exactly. <laughs> well, we've made it to the final episode in this look back at the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. This guest was a suggestion from a viewer. I got an email that said Ben Horn is a large format film photographer and I'd love to see him on the show. I thought to myself, large format film in 2017. Yeah, I think I need to talk to this guy. Ben agreed to come on. We had a great conversation about this landscape shot and he explained why he chooses large format film. What does the film, large format film, bring to landscape photography like this that you don't get other than that restriction? What does it bring to the image itself, in other words? So one of the reasons I was attracted to large format to begin with was the quality. Because you can, in this case, this photo is taken on slide film. And then I could scan that at however big I want. It could be hundreds and hundreds of megapixels, um, which is really cool because you get 
some enormous quality because you have so much surface area. I mean, I could do very large prints and you don't even really see the grain just because since your film is starting out so big, you don't really have to magnify things all that dramatically in order to get the bigger print sizes. But but basically I can I can print it about any size I want. It just depends on how big I happen to actually scan that file. Um, and also I have a lot of cropping potential. I mean, if I wanted to, I can take a regular photo and just crop it down to, you know, long and skinny panoramic photo. And uh, I would still have however, however much resolution I want, just so long as I made all the right decisions when I shot the photo to try to get things as, as sharp as possible in the most and important areas. And scanned it as clean as possible. Exactly. And there you have it. A look back at the highlights for the first year of the Behind the Shot podcast. I'm your host, Steve Brazel. If you saw a clip today for an episode that maybe you didn't catch when it first came out and you'd like to see the whole thing, go to thisweekinphoto.com and click the link for Behind the Shot. All past episodes are there. While you're there, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player so that you get all new episodes delivered to you because I do have some great guests already lined up for 2018. Again, thank you for all your help and support over the past year. I really appreciate the shares, the telling your friends and family, the mentions online, the iTunes reviews. You guys have been great in making this podcast a success. And again, seriously, thank you very, very much. We'll see you next year.